dock stacks up the charts to the end of the ship and then starts dictating. Do you honestly think they remember all those people? I think the medical records now really don't make it easy for you to do these records substantially after the fact. Hi, Rick Bucata here. Before we get into the October issue of Risk Management Monthly, I wanted to tell you that we have a special segment with an emergency physician based out of Tucson who's also an MBA who uh, had some issues and concerns regarding what emergency physicians ought to do with regard to asset protection and makes reference to the session that we had last month. He has some extraordinarily interesting and right-on advice, I think. And so I would suggest that you take a listen to that segment. Okay, without further ado, here we go. Risk Management, October 2020. Hi, it's Rick Bicotta. It's a 2020 issue, October. We're coming to you. Greg Henry, my guest, Mike Bresler. Uh, we're going to do a special issue uh, this month that, that not only do we have Greg and Mike, and Mike, I want to introduce you. Mike, uh, we, we met at Cal ASAP, like, in the Mesozoic period of emergency medicine. <laughs> and uh, Mike went on to be uh, president of California ASAP. And he also became the uh, the uh, president, I guess it was to call uh, the chairman. Speaker, speaker, speaker of the council. Right, speaker, speaker yeah. of the council, which is a kind of a big deal. Uh, ASAP members uh, all convene every year for their annual meeting, except for this year. And uh, the number of, representatives that you have, it relates to the number of members that, uh, in the state. So California always had a lot of members, a lot of influence. Michael got to become the uh, the speaker and uh, they decide all of the uh, issues that they want the board of directors to um, act upon. Now, not, not that they always do it, but that's kind of the general rule of how, how this goes. So it's usually a great fun. And um, this year there was a special award given out uh, that I don't know that was given before. Maybe it was, Michael, you have to straighten me out, but Billy Mallon got the curmudgeon award. Uh, now, was the, is this a new thing for this, the council to have the curmudgeon award? Uh, uh, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, your, your buddy here won it a number of years ago. The estimable Dr. Henry was one of the early winners of the curmudgeon award. It's basically a good-natured award, um, uh, ribbing, giving it to uh, the person who uh, is sort of a, a curmudgeon, kind of negative in a positive way. Hard yes. to explain, but if you think of Billy and Greg, you got it. Yeah, 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 yeah. They, they define it. <laughs> <laughs> do you, do, it's people you really don't want on your case <laughs> in the council. And so they give us an award and hope we'll go away. But if you know, it's gonna, someone else's case, everyone else enjoys. <laughs> that's right, exactly. I mentioned Billy because um, uh, so many of you know him and uh, view him as really one of the major teachers and best teachers in emergency medicine by far. And unfortunately, Billy had a stroke uh, about a week ago and is in the hospital at Stony Brook where he has um, got some paralysis and some dysphagia. And we're all wishing him the best. If you want to catch up on Billy, there is a website called CaringBridge, caringbridge.com. You go on there and uh, you look up Billy Mallon and uh, there's generally a daily update on how he's doing. Billy, we all want you to get better. 
Oh, he's he's one of the great ones, and um, all of us have spent many fine hours with Dr. Malin. His contributions to the specialty have been um, towering. So we we feel we feel very badly. Yeah, his his influence throughout our specialty is is well known. Uh, I don't think there's anyone in the country that doesn't know Billy Mellon in terms of um, attending his talks, et cetera. But those of us who have worked with him closely and uh, socialized with him, um, this is a real gut punch. And and we're all hoping Billy will come back uh, to his usual self and continue improving emergency medicine care throughout the country and, and the world. He's done a lot of international work as well and continue uh, uh, enjoying his uh, company for those. Oh, else well, my daughter met him at a, at a party at Rick's house. She said to me, is that guy really a doctor? He says he's a doctor. He came in on a motorcycle uh, sm- uh, smoking, having a beer and and uh, uh, no helmet on. Yeah, at probably the time. wearing a, his trademark beret. Yeah. Yes. And I th- I thought, oh, yeah. She said, "Who is that?" I said, "That's got to be Dr. Malin." And of course, it was. <laughs> well, let's get started on today's uh, topic. Uh, Mike has done a lot mm-hmm. of uh, medical legal work over his career. Uh, Mike recently uh, retired from the uh, Peninsula Hospital, Mills Peninsula Hospital up in, in Burlingame. And uh, I thought it would be a good opportunity to distill down, you know, in 30 or minutes or so, the uh, key advice that he would have based on his experience of how doctors screw up and, and, and whether there's any kind of consistent uh, w- ways in which they do it so that we can alert our colleagues to, you know, just don't, st- just don't step into these holes. So, um, Mike, take it away. Okay, thanks, Rick. Well, I've had uh, the uh, well, four decades of perspective of practicing both in the community hospital, as Rick said, and of course, also in the academic center at Stanford. And uh, I'm still uh, somewhat retired uh, from, uh, from Stanford. I'm still a clinical professor there. But uh, um, in that, with that perspective of both the community hospital and the academic center, I've been able to, to experience myself all the foibles that I might and have uh, committed in terms of uh, problems medical legally. Fortunately, I've, I've really never been sued. But um, uh, in doing medical legal work, both in California and throughout the country, uh, as Rick said, there are a number of things that we see repeating all the time. And so I'm going to go through some of those. For I, I view the, the, our practice as based on three pillars. One, of course, with, it goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway, is cl- giving good clinical care. A second one is our relationship with the patient and the family that is rapport with both of them. Because in one sense, the family is our patient as well. They're often hurting. And I think it's part of our role to have a relationship with them, to reassure them, to keep them informed, et cetera. But the other thing is, if if there's a lawsuit, it's going to be the family uh, that also is involved and maybe the only people that are involved in the suit if the patient uh, passes away. The third pillar is our charting. And I'm going to start out discussing that. Uh, what it, a lot of plaintiffs' lawyers say that it's below the standard of care based on what you put in the chart. I think that's BS. Writing, dictating has nothing to do with standard of care unless you put something that's patently false. However, it has a heck of a lot to do with whether or not we are sued and whether or not we win the case. Now, what usually happens 
is the family and or the patient are grieved. They go to a plaintiff's attorney. Uh, the attorney subpoenas the chart. They look at the chart. And the good, experienced, ethical, and most are plaintiff's attorneys that I know, say they reject up to 90% of cases uh, that come to them. They look at the chart. Um, they may farm it out to an expert witness, such as myself or someone else. And if that medical record makes it clear that the care given met the standard, a good plaintiff's attorney is not going to pursue it. An inexperienced or unethical one may shop around till they get somebody that tells them that it is below the standard of care. And there are some whores out there that'll say whatever the attorney wants in either direction, but particularly for the plaintiffs. But basically what you want is your record when the lawsuit is, is considered a year or two after your care, you want that record to speak for yourself. You don't wanna to have to explain anything in a deposition or a trial or arbitration. So what you put into that chart is extremely important. That doesn't have to be a tome, it doesn't have to be many pages long, but you certainly want to include the pertinent positives and the pertinent negatives. Now, what are some of the things that, that we have seen uh, in, in uh, uh, terms of problems with the medical record? Well, oftentimes it's very cursory and in uh, testimony in the deposition, for example, the, the emergency doc will say, well, I, I did my usual, you know, neuro negative. And then they'll go wax poetic for 15 minutes about what their usual neuro exam is. And it may or may not be believable, but they have to explain it. One of my pet peeves is I'm gonna ask you all who are listening, be honest with yourselves of how many times do your, does your chart say cranial nerves two through 12 normal? Now, a case that I, I thought was uh, pretty telling was that I read a trial transcript once where the attorney said to uh, the emergency physician, now doc, your medical record makes clear you are a caring physician. You're very compulsive. You've really tried very hard with, with this patient. Now, I noticed you say cranial nerves two through 12 are normal. Could you tell the jury please exactly each, what each of those cranial nerves are named, um, how you tested them, and please explain the difference to the jury between the hypoglossal and the glossopharyngeal nerve. Bang. Oops. Credibility is blown. Doesn't matter what that doc said afterwards. The jury knew that that doc was, was lying. Um, and that's the kind of thing you don't want to say cranial nerves through 12, unless you truly examine them. If you have, go ahead. Um, so you want your medical record to, it doesn't have to be extremely extensive, but just, you might just say something like cranial nurse tested and are unremarkable. And, you know, and you can explain later what you tested. You don't need to test all 12 or 11 of those 12, for example. Another case, um, uh, where too much was put in the record. I just lo I love this case. This was a, uh, a finger laceration with a digital nerve injury. And, um, the doc did everything right. I uh, called the hand surgeon, the hand surgeon said, well, just, you know, clean it up, put some antibiotics on, I'll see the patient in, in the office after the weekend. All that was done. And, and the patient unfortunately ended up with a uh, with permanent injury. The hand surgeon was not sued, but the doctor was. Now, it was based on the medical record on the chart because the medical record included an excruciating review of systems. I mean, every review and under each review, you know, seven or eight different things uh, of that review. And each one was kind of marked as normal, as unremarkable. Um, and uh, including the chest exam, for example. And so in the deposition, the plaintiff's attorney said, now doctor, could you go through and explain each one of those items on the review and each item under each system and say exactly what it is you asked the patient? 
Um, and could you also tell us, by the way, why you did a chest exam on this nice looking young lady here who had a finger laceration? Well, they settled that case two hours later. And <laughs> afterwards, I, I, <laughs> we, I asked the plaintiff's attorney, I said, what were you doing? And he said, I know you're the, the doc met the standard of care. I didn't care. I didn't matter. If I presented that in front of a jury, not only was that doctor's credibility blown and they would find below the standard, but not only that, there was a question of insurance fraud because he obviously bloated the chart for billing purposes. Well, yeah, they settled that case two, two hours later, as I said, Greg. Yeah, you just explained pumping the chart, uh, you know, gre greasing the chart so that instead of a level two or a level three, it can be a level five. And uh, all of a sudden, when that sort of thing is explained to a jury, uh, the worst thing a doc can do, by the way, is say something like, well, maybe I didn't do exactly all that. Oh, my God. Then you've stepped into it. And now they're just going to take you out, slap you around and, and, and spank you for for what you did. You know, I, I have I have seen that. Uh, a number of times, get to the point, write down what's important, don't write down shit that you didn't do, and move on. Because uh, eventually, somebody's going to catch up for this kind of stuff. You know, there was a study that we talked about, uh, maybe about three or four months ago. It was at a, a university here in Los Angeles, which you go unnamed, where the, re <laughs> where the residents were uh, spied on while they did uh, histories and physicals. And uh, the idea was to see the level of uh, uh, of documentation that they did. And bottom line is, no matter what the heck was wrong with you, they came out with charting for a level five. They had been taught, you know, that that this is what you're supposed to do. And it was pretty much absurd because as you would say, Michael, the, 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 um, the, although the exam might have been a level five, the problem was not a level five. And uh, so they left it up to the coders, but the coders, anytime they needed a level five, they, they had it on the chart. Uh, and it was really kind of like somebody had beaten into them. This is the way you're supposed to do it. This is optimizing the, uh, the charges. And uh, it, was, it was bad. It was embarrassing, uh, to tell you the truth. When you don't actually do things and the opposite attorney has looked it up or been coached by a physician, you can get in trouble. I watched one doctor who went through the cranial nerves 2 through 12, and he was tortured. The first question was, doctor, tell us the four divisions which are testable of the seventh cranial nerve. And all of a sudden, he's sitting there stammering, understand that he, that there are three of the four, of which we never test, and uh, divisions of the nerve. And, and uh, all of a sudden, he's now going to be beaten by this guy on every one of these issues. Just don't go there. And you know, another issue in terms of medical records of credibility is cutting and pasting. 
Now, with our electronic records now, most of us have electronic records, and everyone will if you don't have them yet. It's so easy to cut out something from what another doctor wrote and put it in your chart. And that may well be legitimate. You may want to do that. But I've seen charts that go on forever, page after page of irrelevant stuff, repeating everything. And what you really want other doctors who are eventually going to read your note to, to be able to pick out is your own note. So that is counterproductive. But also, it can be a problem in terms of by putting in your note and not attributing it, attribute, not attributing it to whoever wrote it, you are basically taking responsibility for what that other doctor wrote. So I, th- I think it's fine to cut and paste what's relevant, identify who wrote that note, who wrote that chart. And I like to set it off in a different font. Like I put them in a ta- italics and, and a different color. I like blue. Um when it gets, if it gets copied later, you may, they may not see the blue, but they'll always see the attribution to another doctor and the italics. So I think that's, that's one thing that's important. Yeah. I'm sorry. The idea here of lying on the record is, is an issue because in that case, you're talking about uh, ascribing to yourself work that was done by somebody else in this UCLA study when they observed uh, the residents and they looked at their charts and looked at what they actually did, they know what they did, they, they heard what they asked and looked at the charts. There was gross fabrication on the charts with regards to which act, what actually uh, was done by the residents. So it was a, a situation of over charting and putting this stuff down that, that was not either asked or examined. Probably the best cross probably the best cross examination I ever saw on this was uh, at one hospital they knew when the physician entered the room and when he left the room. So he had been with this patient for about seven minutes. Uh, then when they had to go, he was on the stand, and they the the uh, opposite attorney, the opposing attorney asked him how long it took to do each one of these things. When he added it up, it would have been 25 minutes worth of examination time. And we know he was in the room for seven minutes. I mean, that's the kind of thing that when you step into it, it just doesn't look, doesn't look good coming out the other side. Yeah, be honest. And you know, another thing, we 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 do put a lot of things in the chart that you know to, to to increase billing perhaps. And some of that's legitimate. For example, abdominal pain. When we put in a differential diagnosis, there are tons of things that can be considered. And I think it's entirely reasonable to put, you know, have a dot phrase or a macro that you put in the chart for all the things that might be abdominal pain if you want to do that. But make sure that it's it's relevant. For example, I've seen cases where um, the list of problems can include things like ruptured ectopic pregnancy, uh, ruptured ovarian cyst, to be considered in a seventy-year-old man. Right, now, exactly. that's a little <laughs> a little bit inappropriate. Um, I personally have two two dot phrases: one for abdominal pain in a woman, and one abdominal pain in a man. But then I, I know those are just like one click, and it's there. Okay. But then I put in another paragraph afterwards that says, in this particular patient, the things we consider are, and then what's relevant for that, you know, left lower quadrant pain and that, you know, 70-year-old guy that could be aortic aneurysm or could be diverticulitis, et cetera. Michael, let me bring up a problem which I've seen a bunch of times, and that is the doc 
stacks up the charts to the end of the shift and then starts dictating. Do you honestly think they remember all those people? The worst is they come back in two days later and there's three or four charts which they hadn't dictated the last time they were in. If you believe we remember those patients perfectly, you're smoking dope, you're a crazy man. It just doesn't happen that way. I'm lucky if I remember that patient when I go down the hall and dictate the chart, let alone three or four days later, and I've actually said uh, on the dictation, uh, finer points of history, um, uh, not relevant at this time, or I can't remember them. And you know what? Because I'm not going to lie that I remember whether they had their appendix out at age 15. I'm just not going to do it. Although well, I, think the medical, age, Rick. <laughs> I think the medical records now really don't, don't really uh, – make it easy for you to do these records substantially after the fact. Um, yeah. That's just the way they're created. So you see these doctors staying long uh, after the shift is over to, to do their um, paperwork. Speaking of that, Michael, I, I, I like your opinion about something that we've talked about in the past. It's the idea where physicians are expected, required to sign the charts of all the uh, APC patients, whether you saw them or not at the end of the shift. Um, are you familiar with that? And, and what do you think? Yes. But before I respond to that, I, I want to just comment on, on what Greg just said uh, in terms of doing charts. Later. We have a rule that our, our charts have to be done by the next day. Um, and I've always made it a practice to do it the next morning uh, at the latest. What, what I have personally done is put enough in the record at that time to jog my memory of things that I might forget. And I make damn sure I've got that record done by then, by like noon the next day. That's the first thing I do when I get up. Because I think Greg's absolutely correct. It, it, it's, it's, you can chart it out early in your career. You can't remember the stuff. And later in your career, you can't remember the stuff. Um, <laughs> but, but it is important that, that you not let these charts go day, two, three days, you know. Um, now, in, in response to your question, yes. Um, uh, APPs, that is um, uh, uh, advanced practice providers, uh, whether they um, be PAs or nurse practitioners, uh, can be extremely helpful in terms of uh, making our lives easier and patient care. But they don't have the training that we have. It's just the way it is. And um, many places require the doctor to sign off on that chart without ever having seen the patient. And I've seen more and more medical legal cases involving this, where the doctor never saw the patient or just very, you know, the case may have been run by the doc who, who didn't examine the patient and then is responsible for that patient and is sued based on that. So I think that, you know, at Stanford, we don't let a suture removal at four in the morning get out seen by our fourth year residents unless the faculty attending has just laid an eye on that patient. So if we do that for fourth year emergency medicine residents, we certainly should do that for PAs and nurse practitioners. My own feeling is every single patient that's that if the doctor is present, I'm not talking about a rural area that's just staffed by an NP, for example, and not a doctor. But if the doctor's there, I think there should be a rule that that doctor sees every patient 
ideally, but if not, and there are cases, there are emergency departments where that isn't the case, that's fine. But the doctor should never be required to sign a chart that he or she has not seen the patient, uh, at least at least passed a hand over that patient. Yeah, I'd hate to, to, to tell you the number of times I've been involved in this discussion uh, as to did they see them? Uh, what's seeing the patient mean? Does that mean walking by the room? Does it mean this or that? I, I'm on the conservative side of this, which is, I think you ought to see patients uh, if your name goes on the chart and you ought to feel comfortable. You know, when I work with, with advanced practice people, I will get comfortable over a period of time with some of the things they're doing, and I may not repeat everything, but I got to feel comfortable with that. And if, if I don't quite understand what's going on, I got to see the patient because if the story is the story isn't right, you know there is a reason why old guys like us are kept around, just to remember, just to tell old war stories about. I remember back in '76 when I had the same kind of complaint, and uh, the patient had X, Y, or Z. There's a there's a function for old timers in the department. We do Absolutely. know that. But the other thing is that, especially if you're, if there's a bill that's put out with your name on it, right? Exactly. You better make damn sure you've seen the patient. Now, one thing I have seen, uh, uh, very rarely, which I think is fine, in a hospital that or a, a medical group uh, that requires a doctor to see a patient to, to sign the chart in retrospect, even if they haven't seen the patient. What you might consider is in a macro a dot phrase that says. I am signing. I have reviewed the medical record, and I and I am signing this for quality assurance purposes only. I've seen that as well, Michael. Um, I, I, you know, I never feel a hundred percent comfortable with that, but I understand why they do it, and it has to do with billing and uh, is there fraudulent billing and all the other things that go along with it. All I can say is uh, what we've done is proven to the rest of the world that they don't really need us <laughs> and that the PAs, obviously, if you think they don't need help occasionally, then what are we there for? What do we do? Why have us at all? For those of you that uh, are not uh, living in California or members of CalASAP, uh, you may not be aware that right now, last week or earlier this week, the governor signed a bill, which we strongly opposed. Uh, and it allows the independent practice of APPs, including the emergency department. And we wanted a cutout for, for the emergency department um, because it's medically dangerous. That's not at all to denigrate APPs. I think they're great. Um, uh, but the fact simply is they don't have the, the training that we have. And there's a reason that we spend four years in pre-med, four years in medical school, and three and now usually four years in residency. There's a reason for that. Yeah, I, th I, I I couldn't agree with you more. And what I don't want is I do not want patients to be sold a bill of goods, i.e., I don't want them thinking they're seeing doctors so-and-so. And, -so. and I, I do have a case where that was actually part of the lawsuit yep. as to, is that doctor so-and-so? And it wasn't. 
It was PA so-and-so. In fact, it was a nurse PhD. So yes. they were doctor nurse, exactly. but they weren't doctor doctor. I've seen that a number of times where patients, even at the deposition phase, were never aware that they had never seen a doctor on multiple emergency department visits or even, even in their primary care clinic. They called the nurse practitioner doctor. They were never corrected, apparently. And they never knew that for several years, including several emergency department visits, as well as clinic, they had never had a doctor lay a hand on them. Right. Yeah, I was going to mention the uh, that um, California new law we're, I think we're 29th state now to have autonomous practice of nurse practitioners. Some of those states um, allow autonomous practice the day you graduate. Half of them do. The other half require some degrees of experience before you can go out uh, and hang up your own shingle. Um, yes, the AMA was r really opposed to it. This, uh, is Cali said, even, even when Cali said, 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 it's going to lose, Let, let's see if we can cut out the ER, that... For some reason, that did, I thought that could fly, but it, it didn't. Yep. So, in any case, that's uh, we've talked much time, much in the past about how we can get into trouble with our colleagues, and um, this is one of them. I think that we were old-fashioned at our group, and certainly in the beginning, we saw every patient that they saw. Yep. Now, that would be considered to be a waste of time in many groups where they have all the minor cases seen almost exclusively by PAs and NPs, and you never see them. But um, ultimately, I think the medical director is responsible for the quality of care of every patient seen in that department. And so it doesn't really matter whether you're allowed to do autonomous care. The hospital sets the standard uh, in terms of what it wants to have happen in terms of who's seeing what in the emergency department. Yeah, let me let me be the, the voice of doom here. I fought through this when I was uh, president of ASEP. Uh, there is that movement which would replace, and, and if you look at every other uh, profession, it always moves toward the least expensive provider doing that provision. Mm -hmm. And if you're the least expensive provider can get by, uh, then that's exactly what's going to happen. And, and, and we have to guard against this tremendously because <laughs> quite frankly, we've got to have, we've got to have work for our residency graduates, if you don't need them, if you don't need residency training and experience, what are we doing charging this money? Well, you know, I think um, we have to be careful because uh, we now that clinicians are hired by hospitals, we can say, well, hospitals want to put in $130,000 PA versus a $330,000 emergency physician. But when you look at groups, who are staffing emergency departments, you know, like the major groups, the team health and such, they have the same decision. Do we want to put 130,000 PA or NP in there? So it's not like, you know, we can be the bad guys in this as well. Right, of course. Michael. Yeah. Go ahead, Rick. No, no. I, I, uh, do you have more things in your list that we'd like to hear about? I bet you do. Sure. Uh, one of the uh, uh, foibles that I see is not checking the past records. Um, great case that uh, that I consulted on. 
was a uh, uh, patient came in with a nosebleed. Um, it wasn't too bad. And um, it had pretty much stopped. Uh, but the doc figured, well, you know, maybe I'll just pack the nose anyway, just to make sure that there's no problem. And he uh, got a face full of blood. And the patient not only started bleeding, but became hypotensive um, and started to become bradycardic uh, as he tried to intubate the patient and um, uh, eventually was able to establish an airway. Uh, the patient uh, was admitted to the ICU and uh, recovered everything except for the brain. And this patient has significant uh, hypo hypoxic brain injury. And what was the issue in the chart? I mean, is, or in, the, in the case, was there anything wrong in trying to pack a nose of, a, of, a, of this patient? Well, had that doctor looked at the past records, a very cursory look would have found a prior record within the last year uh, from ENT that said this patient, ha patient has Osler-Weber-Rondeau, required eight units of blood for epistaxis, and in capital letters, bold print, do not instrument this lady's nose. Oops. <laughs> God, Osler Weber Rondu. Oh my God! I thought that was I thought that was a triple special down at the the lunch place around the corner. Oh my God! I, I'm sure it's a disease I studied once, but yeah, I don't do remember platelet. much about it. Platelet dysfunction. But the point is that you want to, you want to, especially an older person, I mean, maybe a sprained ankle or something, sore throat, no, but basically you want to look at the past history. And fortunately we often have that, you know, automatically in the, in the electronic chart. But what I'd like to advise our residents is at least take a look over the last year or two. If there's an emergency medicine visit in the last year or two, just take a quick look at it. If there's a hospitalization, look at the discharge summary. And, you know, and now we can do that. That's one of the things that's good yes. about electronic records mm -hmm. as opposed to calling the record room, at waiting two hours and then having a stack, at least a Stanford of you know seven volumes long. We can <laughs> quick look in the electronic record. And, and I would really advise that uh, as a matter of routine. And you don't have to spend more than two, three minutes at most at it. Uh, some other things that we see. Uh, what about chest pain, guys? Um, we see chest pain all the time. And, um, you know, we all know how to work up a chest pain. But one of the recurring problems I see medical legally is the simplest thing at all of all. That is the history. And a better history might have precluded bad medical care, an unfortunate outcome, and loss of a malpractice suit. One of the problems is, is the character of the chest pain. Now, we all know that you know, heartburn can be chest pain, et cetera. But one thing I often see is a patient comes in about noon and has had like five hours of chest pain. When did the patient start? Uh, the pain start? And the patient says, well, you know, about, I woke up with it about seven o'clock in the morning. Well, it's noon now, five hours, you know, trope, even serial tropes you know, are negative. The EKG doesn't show anything. You know, can't be an MI, certainly can't be, um, not likely, but could it be unstable angina? And we don't miss MIs, we miss unstable angina because the question to ask after how long have you had the pain, questions are, when did it start? When was the last time you had pain and what happened in between? And if that patient had intermittent chest pain during those five hours, while the markers and the EKG may be negative, it may well be unstable angina. So that's one thing. The other thing in the history of uh, taking for chest pain, I often see confused as pleuritic chest pain. Um, 
the patient has pain when they breathe. Well, it's not likely to be a heart. Well, yeah, it could be. Think about anatomically. I know students nowadays don't really cut up cadavers that much as they used to, um, but think of where the heart is, you know? sits on the diaphragm to some extent. And so there can be actually pleuritic chest pain. It's not likely uh, with heart, but the problem is that when you find that a patient has pleuritic chest pain, yes, it suggests lung. The most common cause, by the way, is the patient needs a burp or fart. It's usually GI, but you know, it can be lung. The next question to ask is, okay, it hurts when you breathe. Does it hurt when you're not breathing? And the patient will say, what do you mean? If I'm not breathing, I'm dead. Okay, do this, yeah, take a yeah. deep breath. Okay, let it out, stop, freeze, don't breathe. Do you have chest pain now? Because pain outside of the act of breathing is not gonna be lung. It may be heart, maybe aorta, which is frequently missed, could be GI. And that then brings up aortic uh, pain, which we, we often see missed. We are so keyed into, to, um, you know, is this a cardiac ischemia or not? that we sometimes miss aortic pain. Now, thor thoracic dissections may cause just back pain, intrascapular pain, and not chest pain. Obviously, we know that an older man in particular, we're, we're gonna be concerned about that. Um, one of the foibles that I see is uh, intermittent pain with aortic dissection over several days. Yes, it can happen. The classic one, of course, is a patient, 70-year-old dude comes in, has excruciating chest pain, writhing around, EKG doesn't show an acute MI, yeah, think dissection. But there can be other presentations. It can be, as I said, just upper back pain. It can be intermittent over several days. It may not be the most excruciating pain. Get a chest X-ray, and oftentimes it's a portable chest X-ray um, with the patient sitting up um, and an AP view. It may or may not show a widened mediastinum. Or you may say, well, it's an upright chest film. The mediastinum's a little wide, but you know, not enough to, to really count. And um, it's not uncommon that we see missed aortic dissection. Now, guys, I'm going to ask you a question. What about D-dimer for uh, thoracic dissection? Uh, we know that the D-dimer often is elevated with dissection. And 95%. Yeah, but, that's what but you and I both reviewed a case, Michael, where the D-dimer was negative and the person right. was rolled up to the floor with some ongoing chest pain with negative troponins and um, unremarkable EKGs and uh, was ruled out as maybe unstable angina. And, and as they got to the floor, the eyes rolled back of the patient and they expired right there in front of the, the registering nurse um, and the wife. So... D-dimers, uh, you certainly cannot, 95% is not necessarily good enough in this life-threatening, the big three, PEMI and um, aortic dissection. Those are the three things in the chest that, can, that you need to consider in every case. And the other thing I've seen along these lines is um, the doc will order a CT scan uh, in a computerized record and will say, you know, rule out pulmonary embolus. Um, and depending on what your hospital has, I, you know, one of my pet peeves with electronic records is there's not a doctor on this planet that knows what the hell these things mean in terms of, you know, the, the, the actual orders themselves. And I've had the personal experience as a patient um, with that being screwed up on an, on an MRI, um, whether or not included the A part of that. Um, but it can be very confusing. I don't know who writes these things, at least in our version of EPIC. 
Um, but if you do that, you know, there's different technique that the techs and radiologists use for a chest CT if you're wanting to discover whether it's a pulmonary embolus versus uh, an aortic dissection. And so I think it's important to put down in your order that you are concerned for both, not just one. Not figure yeah, cons- out the consider. Yes, that's yeah. right. Consider. So that brought up the idea of the triple rule out, right. where they were going to look at coronary arteries, pulmonary arteries, and aorta, all in some sequence that they, that they were going to do. Uh, these things are not ordered very, very frequently at all, but they they were an attempt to look at the three things that will kill you um, with one study. That reminds me of the uh, old thing about the surgeon's uh, 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 use of the stethoscope. You put it on the xiphoid, and that way you get the abdomen, both chests, and the heart all at one time. <laughs> exactly. <Right. That's> a, <laughs> Yeah. And so you can write on the chart WNL for we never looked. <laughs> Michael, we have about five minutes left. Can you uh, give us your best shot here? Uh, yeah. You know, one thing that I find very frustrating is the diagnosis of spinal epidural abscess. And we all know that that it's the chance of this occurring is increased in a needle user, perhaps. Um you know, diabetic maybe, but I've seen a number of these things missed and for good reason, because it's like a pericardial space, like a hemopericardium. As you put pus into the epidural space, the pressure does not increase until it reaches a certain volume. And then you've got a non-distensible barrier there, similar to pericardium. You have the, the, the epidural space can accommodate a certain amount until it can't. And then within minutes, that patient could become paralyzed. So how often, how, when's the last time, those of you who are listening, when's the last time that you worked a shift and did not see somebody with back pain? I mean, it's right. all the time. And the fact is, how can we distinguish possible epidural abscess from the routine back pain? Especially perhaps in our, our friends, our needle users who come in complaining of back pain so they can get drugs. When do you scan them? When do you not? And oftentimes I, I see that the plaintiff or the family has sued based on a horrible outcome. And yet the doctor did nothing wrong. Um, but sometimes they did. So I think you always have to be aware of this. And and the pearl that I would say is this. We know that the, you know, we are halfway between evolutionarily walking on all fours and walking upright, which means all of us have back or neck pain, at least sometime in our lives, and unfortunately often chronically. When's the last time you saw a thoracic disc? Hardly ever occurs. In fact, thoracic pain, pain between the scapula, thoracic spinal pain is not very likely to be due to degenerative joint disease or disc. When you have somebody with thoracic back pain, think the possibility of epidural abscess, particularly if they have risk factors, obviously needle users. When they come in hitting us for drugs, they're often going to complain of lumbar pain, of blow back pain. Now you can get an abscess in the lumbar area and the spine and the cervical area, but most of them start out in the thoracic region. So I think that's a pearl to think of. The other thing is the CT is not necessarily going to show it. You need an MRI. Yeah, you need to get the right, right test and you need to be generous. You can't just focus on the part of the spine that you think where the abscess is because people are often fooled. So you need to basically get uh, um, many times just the whole the whole thing. And um, yes, the, the thoracic spine does not 
uh, move. When you bend forward, the part that moves is the lumbar spine. When you bend your neck, it's the cervical spine. But you really can't move your thoracic spine. It's it, it's rigid. It is not the source of mechanical pain. Um, so yes, it, that is a um, thoracic spine pain is kind of like, uh, and then the temperature is 100.4, but nobody really noticed that. Um, that kind of thing. A person does have metal in them. All of these people who've got metal in them are more inclined to have bacteria floating around all over the place. They want to settle someplace like in your back. So good points, Michael. Um, listen, uh, would you be willing to come back in some future episode? Because I think you've got a lot of stuff to, in, 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 in your experiential uh, uh, suitcase there. Yeah, Michael does have a lot of stuff. Fortunately, penicillin will take care of most of it. So we're, we're okay. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Uh, yeah. yeah, it'd be a delight to work with you guys again. I, I would be glad to do that. I much appreciate your participation, Greg. Uh, you're going to be going to your winter home to shut it down. And yes. you are in the process of downsizing to a house probably more expensive than the one you're leaving. <laughs> and, that's, yes. that's the way you downsize in California, at least. Yes, and, yes, yes. And Michael, it's, it's great talking with you. I really appreciate your coming on for us. And we, I would like to do this again. I'd be glad to, Rick. Thanks. Yeah. So last month we had Natalie on, and she was talking about uh, asset protection. And she was uh, representing a, a firm. Uh, she was their educator. And I must say, uh, she seemed to know her stuff. And we put that out there, and I knew that there would be some interest in, uh, I wouldn't say the word necessarily rebuttal, but uh, another point of view. And so uh, Tristan Simmons, an emergency physician from uh, Arizona, uh, wrote in and said, listen, you know, I kind of follow this stuff, and I like to give my two cents. And so, uh, Tristan, welcome. I appreciate your coming on. Greg's on as well. We're going to have a nice little chat about the other point of view. So take it away, Tristan. Let, let's see what's going on here. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, you know, I appreciate you guys having me here. It's a uh, certainly a, a bit of an honor to be sitting here with you guys. A bit. Uh, yeah. <laughs> a great honor uh, to be sitting here with you guys. <laughs> uh, but as uh, you know, Rick said, I reached out after listening to uh, what was a very interesting and a great segment uh, last month on risk management. But I kind of thought after listening to. Uh, what she had to say that she missed what I think is the central kind of theme of your podcast over the past 10 years, which is uh, do the basics very well. And you're 99% there, you know, blocking and tackling is what I always uh, think about when I hear you guys talking. Uh, so certainly I think she was kind of speaking about the high end of asset protection. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of things out there that you can do without getting fancy uh, setups, fancy schemes and lawyers involved. I kind of felt like she was talking about ECMO and the ED thoracotomy. And what I wanted to talk about today <laughs> was the belly pain and the uh, chest pain. Right. Uh, and certainly, you know, for most docs, particularly in the early part of their careers, first 5, 10, 15, uh, you know, years out, you're not worth much. You might even be worth negative dollars. So, you know, having that kind of advanced trust and FLPs is probably not going to be much value to you at that point. She did make an interesting point, though. And that is, you're right, the first 10 years, you're not worth a lot. Um, in fact, there are plenty of people who at 20 and 30 years aren't worth a lot because they've done stupid things like get married three times. Uh, they've, you know, they've bought themselves an airplane. They've done all kinds of things. 
But there will come a point in time when you do have money uh, and you do have to set some of it aside and protect it just in case. So not everything she had to say uh, was was in the clouds here, Tristan. Oh, oh no, I agree. In fact, I don't have any particular uh, bones to pick with anything she said on a factual basis. Everything she said was great and well-educated. I just uh, figured that there were some foundation layers that people needed to think about before we get there. Um, but you kind of let in perfectly to what are going to be, you know, my early points. Uh, you know, a couple of things to get out of the way. I want to give a, you know, disclaimer here. I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a CPA and I'm, I'm an ER doc like wait, everyone wait else. So. Wait a minute. But you are an MBA. I am an MBA. And, uh, and, and I do have an above know. average interest in uh, some of this stuff. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and, you know, certainly uh, there's no perfect plan. You know, there's nothing out there that's going to give you 100 percent avoiding taxes, perfect liability, perfect ability to pass it on to your heirs. You know, there's always a trade off there. You're going to lose uh, control. You're going to lose return on investment. So uh, much like uh, your favorite debates like TPA and things, all of this, uh, you get a bunch of lawyers around a table and they can talk for hours. Uh, and, you know, the final uh, final judgment is going to be in front of the judge, so to speak. Um, but kind of jumping right in, the uh, first question that I had to you know, ask is, where are you actually most likely to lose money? Uh, and like you kind of uh, pointed out a second ago here, Greg, it's actually not liability. Your first uh, points are actually probably going to be disability and divorce. Right, uh, exactly. The two Ds. <laughs> yes. Yeah, there's a third one there, too, and and uh, that's disinheritance if you pissed off rich parents. But, but uh, if you kind of put these things together, I, that's been my experience, is that guys w would have been much better off sticking with the same old dumpy wife, <laughs> and they'd have had a lot more money in the bank. Yeah, that's... Uh... You know, the, the saying goes, have one spouse uh, for this. That's uh, certainly you're talking 30 to 50 percent, I think, chance in most marriages. Luckily uh, for, you know, doctors, that's actually, in spite of common belief, a little bit lower. But this yes. is probably the hardest uh, bit of asset protection to, uh, advice out there is to focus on the relationship and make sure you keep date night uh, kind of in the cards. Right. And cer But certainly there are some options out there. There's prenups and postnups and different things you could do if you... Uh, you know, if your spouse is agreeable and you want to get a lawyer involved up front, but certainly that's a uh, negotiating a prenup or a postnup is a sticky situation at best. Yeah, I, would I think so. Yeah, I think and for most of us who, when we did get married, had nothing. I mean, I brought a, a rusted twelve-year-old uh, car and and uh, some some uh, student debt. And nothing else to the relationship. So <laughs> early on, it wasn't going to be a problem. Well, that's yeah. very clear, uh, Greg, that when you do it, it'll be 50-50. The 30-50 won't matter. It'll, it'll be 50-50 for you. Uh, at best. At best. <laughs> yeah. And just because you're mean, it might be 70-30. Just for, yeah. like, punitive damages. <laughs> right. <You know>? Exactly. <laughs> Go ahead, Kirsten. And so the other, uh, the other, you know, D we mentioned there is disability. Uh, this, uh, how likely you are to be disabled in a career depends on whose website and how much they want to sell you disability insurance when you look it up. But uh, it uh, yeah. seems to be that uh, somewhere between ten percent, forty percent chance that you're going to have some kind of prolonged disability during a career. Yeah, uh, I, I followed this for our guys 
uh, Tristan, and everything depends on who's selling the policy and how they define disabled. Uh, because early on, you know, uh, when I was dealing with this sort of thing with, with young docs, it was, are you in an auto accident? Did you get your arm cut off? Are you blind? Now it's, am I emotionally distressed? Uh, does showing up at work give me, uh, unusual feelings and sensations. This has gone crazy. And as soon as you add more things on the disability policy, the cost has to go up. Because the last thing I need is some guy in a corner, uh, you know, can't find his stethoscope and he's sucking his thumb and says, I can't go into work. We're in in a traumatic business. You should have figured that out. You should have gone into pediatrics early on because if you get upset being in the emergency department, I got no place for you, Jack. <laughs> yeah, and uh, as you pointed out there, certainly this is expensive uh, expensive stuff. So once uh, you, know, you hit financial uh, independence, I think this is the first thing to go. But certainly you can get pretty strict policies out there. Uh, that once you can't be a ER doc anymore, you can't intubate your, uh, I don't know as uh, in regards to the emotional distress uh, component, but once you can't perform procedures, they'll keep paying you a percent of your salary for long term. So, uh, you know, it's, I think that's a pretty important uh, building block there, the asset protection. Although um, I don't know, it was easy to get when we were younger uh, physicians, but I had kind of heard that specialty specific uh, insurance was uh hard to get. And I must admit, frankly, um, I know a few physicians who use their disability to retire on. It was like, um, you know, uh, it was, I'm sure, you know, I don't think insurance companies really want to sell disability insurance to doctors, particularly because they all know buddies who will write, you know, sign a letter saying, oh yeah, he's a mess kind of thing. Um, So, but you may know, more currently, uh, how things are with this uh, disability insurance, Tristan? More than that, you and all of us come from that school of uh, wooden ships, iron men, get out there and do it. What's the matter with you, you wimp piece of crap? <laughs> and now there's this whole uh, sea of people coming in who say, I don't think I can hack it anymore. And, and in fact, we refer to it in the office as the non-hackers. Uh, the <clears throat> That's why we got out of the business of of subfunding or supplying or partially paying for any of those kinds of policies because they became such a pain in the butt to decide what you're going to cover and and what a disability is. It's not a simple question and and we'd like to think it is, you know, again, uh, you can't walk. You you broke your back. You're in a you're in a coma. Okay, that's a disability. But it's very hard for emergency doctors to uh, to agree on some of these things. Yeah, I have heard uh, that once you, when you reevaluate the percentages, if you take the uh, percent of doctors that claim disability out, the percentages go dramatically down and the costs go down. But uh, when I, I uh, re-upped a disability policy within the past couple of years and shopped around with the big five, it's uh, you can still get a pretty strict uh, strict plan, but certainly it's the probably most expensive piece of insurance that I hold. Um, 
at this point. Yep. And 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 believe me, young docs, people who are residents, that sort of thing, they don't believe that and they don't understand that. Uh, they don't even understand why you hold insurance and who it's for and, and how you tailor those things out. You know, there ought to be at least one talk on that in med school somewhere about what you actually need in the basket. <laughs> Tristan, did you ever get the... Uh... The uh, grand rounds on insurance. I, 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 I must have missed, missed that day. You know. Yeah. No, I, you know, I was uh, very fortunate. I trained with a, a small Democratic group outside of Philadelphia, and they were uh, very turned on to malpractice and liability and, dis and disability. So we actually got regular talks on that stuff, which is uh, something I'm very grateful for, and some and one of the reasons that I uh, came out a step ahead of the game here. Yeah, well, maybe they used our names in some of their talks because, <laughs> you know, well, we, we get quoted on some of this stuff a lot. Yeah. Well, Tristan, I checked your background to see whether you had any felonies or not. And uh, turns out that you're, a, you're kind of a neighbor. You're, you're, you're from Doylestown, uh, which is clear, close to Montgomery County, where I uh, was uh, born and raised and where my the uh, nerve center for the Center for Medical Education is. Yeah, is and Doylestown has turned out to be a very kind of like a foo foo kind of a place with uh, nice people living there who uh, maybe are commuting to New York or the like. But it's uh, it's a really upscale kind of place now. What, could I ask what group you were with? Just uh, did you leave under good terms, Tristan? Yes, yes. They, okay. Yeah. Okay. Right. What, the, what group uh, the group I trained with actually was uh, out of Southern New Jersey. Uh, Southern. Uh, uh, Jersey emergency physicians. It's a great small, uh, maybe the last standing Democratic group in that part of the country. Oh, I meant to tell you, Tristan, they were bought up last week by. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's they're, they're, they're the last one. Rick yeah. owns them now, by the way. Yeah, go ahead. Well, listen, it's only appropriate we give them a plug because I, I think that, that knowing about this stuff in, in an objective manner is really uh, important. Uh, I certainly agree. Uh, about the importance of insurance and also things like, you know, term life insurance when you're starting out in your career and you've got a, you know, a, a, a new relationship and this, that, and the other thing and learning potential and earning potential. And um, I think that most people just say insurance person, now forget it, you know? Yep. Uh, I don't want to interrupt anymore. Go ahead, Tristan. No, no. Um, so kind of like moving down the, the list I made her, this is a, kind of the broad category that I called uh, behavior and decisions. And, you know, I don't want to sound too much like the uh, the police here, and I don't want to tell anyone how to, you know, live or what to buy. But, um, you know, I, these are all personal decisions, but I also don't want anyone to kind of live in fear. I want everyone to make educated decisions on what they're, you know, doing, and just that everyone should know that the things they own and the things they do create liability for them. Uh, ironically, these are most of the same things that wind people uh you know, have people ended up in the ER on a daily basis. Uh, so some certainly some things that people, you know, fall into the, you know, home accidents, dogs, and uh, people around the house that people should be considering uh, when they make their uh, life choices. Uh, and these are the pretty simple things. Um, that yeah, I, consider. I think that all doctors need to be sworn off going up onto the roofs. Nobody, no doctor should be on a roof. Uh, <laughs> that is just not non-negotiable. 
I don't want to hear about your cleaning out your gutters or anything like that. Yeah. You know, I know a fellow and Greg, you know, him. I don't want to mention names who uh, went to work on his father's roof, fell off the roof and broke, broke, broke both uh, tibias. And yeah. so, and when you've got both tibias out, out, you're in a wheelchair for a long period of time. <laughs> yeah, it's not. Because he it's said, wanted to thing. save 50 bucks, you know, or 200 bucks on his dad's roof. Yeah. 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 Throw a little eloquence in there and you have a pretty bad, uh, bad day. Yes. 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 No more, no roof. That's out. <laughs> um, but these, you know, these things are pretty uh, simple. Keeping a, you know, well-maintained home, a yard, fences, having good pathways and lighting, you know, shoveling your snow no, and no tripping. Yeah, exactly. These are, you Google the top seven uh, causes of uh, personal liability and uh, that makes up about the top 10 uh, right there. <laughs> you got to get rid of the dog. No, no on the roof, get rid of the dog. <laughs> yep. Now I would, I wouldn't advocate for getting rid of the dog, but I, uh, yeah, and I'll probably take some heat from the, uh, the animal people for bringing this up, but certainly we all know the dogs that we see the bites from in the ER on a daily basis. Um, yes. And, you know, the ones that are most discouraging are the uh, bites on the little kids' faces. You know, the toddler who comes up and, you know, grabs a dog's tail or something like that or or it, it disturbs dogs when they're eating and, they're, and they're, their face is right at a dog's face level. And what you get is this nice bite on the face. And those are kind of, oh, my God, uh, frightening kind of things. And you can envision that they would be uh, quite costly uh, from a, a um, claims per, uh, perspective. Yeah, no, if we had a you know dollar for every person that comes in and says they were such a good dog. Yes, exactly. <laughs> My dog never bit anybody, you know. That's the same dog bitten by biting everybody. Yeah, all of us have those uh, phrases and words that as soon as we start to hear them come out of someone's mouth, you know, the famous one here, hold my drink and watch this <laughs> is the, uh, is the one that starts most good stories in the emergency department. Yeah. Yeah. When you uh, hear that phrase, you need to call your insurance adjuster and up uh, your umbrella coverage for sure. Right, exactly. Yeah. I think it's a good, term you never call your insurance guy who sells you stuff my insurance agent he is not your insurance agent he is the agent of the company and uh don't let them get you into that thing like you're your uh buddy buddies or he's a fiduciary or something like that kind of thing uh it's, they're the insurance company's agents right yes that, exactly that, <laughs> no, that, all right ne point. next point next point well you know, we, I don't have to list them all off here, but I call them uh, dangerous personal toys that everybody uh, should know about. Uh, and, you know, they're all things that are all a lot of fun. So, unfortunately, you know, trampolines, boats, ATVs, dirt bikes, you know, pools, just, uh, you know, think about them, put up fences, you know, maybe think twice about having the whole neighborhood bouncing on your trampoline. Because uh, certainly the, uh, you know, the radial ulnar fracture from the kid down the street, if it's on the doctor's trampoline is probably a little more costly than uh than otherwise yeah i think that if i had a trampoline i mean they were invented by orthopedists uh you know to uh, up their business i would also think that i i uh, it would be required that everybody be in a hard collar uh who is in, of, of adult age kind of have you ever seen some of these people land on their heads in the 
flexion of their necks and oh my god you know this stinger going down both arms <laughs> what the hell was that yeah. <laughs> no yeah, no trampolines trampolines are out all right that in the uh that and the monkey bars right those are right. that's the oh, other yeah, one yeah yeah and you know obviously uh you know, disclaimer is that I have a lot of these things and I had a lot of those things, but there's certainly things I think twice about and uh, keep a close eye on. Um, and so moving down the list is, uh, is your cars. This one is a, another one that's hard to get stats on. I was trying to figure out how many people go above their policy limits on a car claim. Uh, and all I could find was a whole lot of law offices offering to help people go above policy limits. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, but certainly, you know, living closer to your work, driving well, and once your kids are old enough, get them off of your, you know, give them the car and give them their own insurance because, uh, you know, young adults are a uh, driving liability machine. That, that's true. That's that's like number three uh, with related. Don't go on the roof and, and, and don't have kids. But if you have kids and they get a car, just get the, the distance them as much as possible. And kind of the last point on this, uh, you know, the behaviors uh, that we're talking about here is, uh, you know, obviously you can't be completely low key as a doctor. People in the community are going to know you and, uh, you know, you don't want to be afraid to tell people what you do. But certainly when they know it comes with uh, some assumptions. So I would advocate for not being uh, super flashy. I think that a fender bender whiplash injury Incur that was caused by a Porsche with somebody that says Dr. So-and-so on their scrubs when they get out is a lot more chronically disabling than that caused by a Ford Taurus. My, my, I feel my neck sore right now, you know, yeah. just thinking about that. It, we used to have a physician who, uh, I, I, he made some money before he got into medicine and he would drive up in a Ferrari 308 GT and park it in the ER there was a couple of dedicated spots for the ER doctor. Never park your car in the dedicated spots for an ER doctor. That's that's a mistake. Get that sign down, number one. And he <laughs> parked this 308 GT there. And I was like, what are you doing? What are you doing? But the CEO comes down there. There goes our contract. You know, there's 5% taken off our contract when he sees that car. You yep. have to go in an old Chevy to work. Yep. There's no out limit. Loud. What, are you, what are you thinking about? There's no limit to the... Uh, personal animosity and hatred something like that produces in the rest of the staff don't do it drive a rusted pinto into the department yeah you yeah. can ride that mercedes around on the weekend but please don't you don't show off low key you know low key and they seem to always put those right next to the ambulance bay and the patient entrance where it says doc <laughs> doctor parking yeah exactly yeah, we had an incident a few years ago where somebody was uh, a disgruntled patient was jumping up and down on the hoods of the uh, doctor's cars. So, <laughs> yeah, and that bodywork on that Porsche is going to cost a lot. Yeah, it's, it's a different body. It's not the same body as on that Chevy. You know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah, and obviously everything we just talked about. Uh, get good insurance for it. Shop around so you make sure you don't get the doctor deal. But um, certainly. Uh, you know, you can get home, renter, auto, motorcycle, boat, and then you can get a umbrella policy that sits over top of all of that. Yeah, I think those umbrella policies are, are really um, important because they don't cost that much, uh, in my experience. And uh, they basically will uh, up your protection, I think, substantially. But then again, I'm sounding like an insurance agent, <laughs> and I don't really 
I when I got it, I thought it was pretty reasonable to tell you the truth. And you get they're in the millions of dollars. As soon as you talk about millions of dollars, you feel like you're some somewhat protected. So yeah, I guess you can get into that the deep pockets debate, right? You up your malpractice limits. There's bigger targets, yes. but on the uh, the same side of that, you also buy. You know, you can go up to say five million and buy five million dollars worth of insurance company lawyers to uh, you know kind of fight for you there as well. So it can go either way, I think. Um. Yeah, I agree. A lot of good points, Tristan. Um, so, you know, moving down the list, I guess we haven't even hit um, professional yet. I put a category in here of family that is uh, also something to be, you know, considered as a way to lose money. And, you know, doctors, obviously, they always want to help, and but they're also often approached as that rich uncle to uh, get involved in things. So, I'm not saying not to you know help family, but you know the uh, idea of business and family being separated is something to think about. Certainly, be careful when you're jumping into loans to family, co-signing family businesses. Uh, you know, we've all seen that played out. Uh, I think I'm sure you guys have in your career and in the ER even on the uh, you know the family member that's being uh, you know kept alive or manipulated in their elder years for their money. So something to be careful about as well. Hmm. Um. And so all the way down that uh, list, I think here at the bottom is uh, when you start getting into that, uh, that profession, the you know, very low likelihood of a professional claim, which is obviously something you guys uh, talk about here uh, all the time. Above policy limits is very rare. Um, and you guys you know, have talked about it for, what, 13 years now, I think, practicing good medicine, being nice to patients, keeping on learning. Um, something I did recently in the past few years is uh, going for a little geographic advantage. Um, you know, I grew up, uh, trained, met my wife outside of Philadelphia, but we, uh, you know, found that is not a place that we want to stay and practice long term. You know, it's kind of like being in Cook County. <laughs> <laughs> so just a simple move can uh, can really help you there. Well, but, uh, I do move. You're talking about from Philadelphia to, uh, to Tucson. Yes. <laughs> you know, and I, I was just in Arizona a couple of days ago. It's still 105 kind of thing. In, it's in it's October. 38 it's 38 degrees here in Michigan guys sorry well, about that you. this is the uh, the second hottest second driest uh, year here we're uh, we're about done with this uh, 105 degree stuff yeah 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 yes the the weather's about to get really good and now now there'll be plane loads of old people flying in from Minnesota and Wisconsin and all uh, Michigan Greg there's right. a bunch yeah, of exactly. old people coming in uh, but I do want to reemphasize. All right. Guys, Any if, other comments from our? Uh, you wanted to make comments on our our uh, last speaker. So anything else on her advice? Uh, I, I mean, moving down to the the end here, I kind of want to you know make the point. I certainly think that everything she said is valid. I think some of it's probably not completely you know tested in case law. But uh, you know, I don't have the uh, the pedigree, so to speak, to really criticize a a group of lawyers. Um, you know, I think she made a lot of great interesting points. I like the idea of FLPs and holding companies and Cook Island Trust to, uh, you know, really protect me. But I think, uh, you know, if you've done a lot of this stuff, you're probably 99% there and you get kind of into a diminishing returns where the more yeah. you, the more you do, the more psychological it is and the less actually, you know, practical it, uh, kind of becomes for you. I think, uh, the, the the perspective that you've added is uh, absolutely um, 
important in terms of all of the things that you've mentioned, which are kind of like we don't think of, uh, about them. And then when the gardener falls off your roof uh, and the gardener basically has no insurance and the gardener now bro broke his back, uh, you've got to be covered for that. Uh, absolutely. Uh, so, Tristan, you brought up a lot of good points and I appreciate your taking the time because um, I, I think that it, we, the, yes, the, uh, the uh, presentation that was made last month really looked like, um, well, first of all, it looked like you could, you could get into a lot of trouble and, you know, that, that they could save you this, but, and the cost I thought was, you know, in the, in the big picture wasn't all that horrible, but, it, but again, it sounds like there was a tremendous amount of ongoing book work that we needed to do to maintain all of these entities that were set up. And it didn't really sound like it was something that would be, uh, typical of an emergency physician. We don't own much at the hospital. We don't own a medical office building and EKG equipment and, uh, and other kinds of things that she was talking about. We're kind of like the carpet baggers of, 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 of medicine. We go in, you know, we, we, we don't, we don't own the place. We don't own, we own our rubber hammer, you know, that's it in our stethoscope. That's, that's about, about it. Yeah. Let me, let me just make one comment about what's happening now, whether you realize it or not, there's a lot of emergency physicians, whoop, who are not doing well financially simply because when COVID hit, everybody and their uncle knows about the big name hospital that got a lot of disease. Most hospitals did not. In our area, most hospitals in southeastern Michigan are down patient volume-wise by 40%. Some of them, 50%. And when well, you Greg, I think that that has come back uh, substantially. It's not 100%, but, it, uh, but that really, really low dip, I think, for most ERs is over. Tristan, what about where you are? Yeah, we're still... Uh probably about 30% down at this point. We've certainly, uh, you know, had to cut some shifts and, uh, you know, decrease coverage to, you know, kind of make ends meet. But we're, uh, we're anticipating the, uh, the snowbirds and our volume getting back to normal here in, uh, in Tucson, hopefully in the next few months. Right. There's nothing as useful as a 90 year old from Michigan who gets off the plane and breaks their hip. Right. Yeah. yeah. yeah they, the, the doctors there should be at the airport greeting all of these people. Welcome. <laughs> yeah. Welcome. Nice to see you. You know, you're going to, you're going to have a wonderful time and the golfing's great. Yeah. 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 In, in Hawaii, they greet you with uh, lays and flowers and all that kind of stuff, you know, cause they know you're bringing major cash. Yeah, Just I didn't think about that, but maybe a charitable contribution to the tourism uh, board will help us out here. Yes, good. Tristan, appreciate the uh, um, thoughtful comments, and um, they make a lot of sense. They really do, and uh, they don't cost very much in terms of you know the idea of the three Ds. So yeah, absolutely, I, I, I uh, you know I appreciate you guys having me. Uh, you know, on, you know, we're, uh, obviously we have a bit of a target on our back and it seems like that's growing, but, uh, you know, I, th I also don't want people living in fear that they have to put in, you know, a lot of money and get a lot of lawyers involved to be safe. I think you can get a long way with uh, a little bit in this situation. 
Thanks so much, Tristan. Uh, appreciate it. Uh, Greg, yep. you have anything further to say? No, just that uh, that we, we, we don't want to blow this stuff out of proportion. All of us have had great careers in medicine. I wouldn't have changed a thing. Did we have to deal a little bit with uh, some malpractice, some lawyers, the usual kinds of stuff? But the kind of things we've talked about, Tristan, are the kinds of problems that anybody who's got a successful career has to deal with. It's not whether you're a doctor or a lawyer or this or that. If you make real money, <laughs> there is a target like on you could, your back. Yeah, you could be a evangelist or something. You. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we're we're no different than anyone else in that regard. It, it just is most docs uh, just don't think about it in advance. I mean, I think what you're really saying is, hey, sit down, piece of paper, a pencil, your advisor, and let's lay this out. So let's avoid the obvious, simple errors well, that, that are not going to go well. Let me ask you a question. Uh, Tristan, do you have like somebody who's an advisor on this stuff? You know, I was, uh, aside from the, uh, you know, attendings I trained with, there's a, we're lucky now there's a lot of stuff out there on the internet. Um, you know, I don't want to give too many plugs, but you could even just, uh, search the white coat investor and he has websites full of this stuff that doesn't cost anything and can, uh, and he has several books that can get the average doctor um, pretty well covered and it's all geared straight to people that, uh, are in our situation and pretty, uh, you know, well tailored for that. Yeah. Okay. Chris, uh, Justin, thanks for uh, writing to us. Gregory, is that your pacemaker going off there? That's my pacemaker. That's doing <laughs> it again. That's all right. Thanks so much, Tristan. All right. You guys take care. Thank bye you. Bye-bye.